Welcome everybody to week two. We are in a series called Joyful Hope. And can I just say, there was joy in the house of the Lord last week. And uh, I am expecting nothing less. Uh, we are walking through the book of Philippians because Philippians is the most joy-filled possibly book in all of the whole New Testament. And Paul just, he talks about it so many times, like 19 times. He talks about joy, rejoicing, gladness. And uh, last week we talked about really joy. And if you could sum it up, chapter one is all about Jesus, right? Paul said, to live is Christ, to die is gain. The joy that was found in Paul was because his joy was in Jesus. And so now as we move to chapter two, we're going to talk about joy in community. So we have joy in Jesus. Now, this is really about joy in others. And actually, there's this old song that kids used to sing, the way you spell joy is Jesus, others, yourself, right? That's the order. Jesus, others, yourself. Well, last week was Jesus. This week is others. And Paul is going to show us how we can have joy in community, joy in the, in, within the believers, within the community of faith. And I want to show you, uh, I, I want to show you this chapter and I want to show you four people uh, that represent joy. First, we're going to see Jesus is the model. Jesus is the model for joy. Second, I'm going to show you Paul and Paul represents sacrifice. Then I'm going to show you Timothy. Timothy represents sincerity. And then last, I'm going to show you this guy. Maybe you've never thought about him, but he's in here. Chapter two, his name is Epaphroditus. So say that five times fast. Uh, Epaphroditus, and he is going to represent uh, simplicity. So sincerity, sacrifice, simplicity. This is a recipe for how we have joy in community. And Jesus is the model of that for us. And we'll see it in here, Philippians chapter two. All right, let's dive in. You got your Bibles? I hope you got your Bibles at home and uh, just open it up to Philippians 2. And we are going to walk through this text together today. Let's read the first four verses. It says, So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Look, each of you, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Others. There's that word others. Paul is appealing to the Philippians about how to have joy in their community. And he says it's all about others. Now, before I really dig into this text, I think there's some cool principles here uh, just in general in this, uh, in this chapter too. Paul says that, you know, hey, when you come together, don't be concerned with your own self, but be concerned with others. Man, 
Listen, if you are feeling left out, if you feel like you don't have community, if you feel like, man, I don't really know anybody, and let me give you a little hint. If you will concern yourself with others, if you'll, if you'll come to church, you know, a lot of people come to church and they think, oh, nobody spoke to me today or nobody said hi to me today. And, and you know what the problem is? You're focused on you. You, 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 me, 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 nobody talked to me. Well, who did you talk to today? Who did you reach out to? Who are you concerned for? A lot of times we make church about what we want from it. But I'm telling you, if you'll come to church with the mindset of others, I'm coming to concern myself with others, then I'm telling you, you'll have so much community. You'll have so many people around you because we're so used to people being selfish. But if we will be concerned with others, I promise you, you'll make some friends. And then Paul says, don't just, don't just be interested in yourself, but interested in others. Everybody, this is what I found. You know what? On Facebook, on social media, everybody's trying to be interesting. Everybody's trying to be the, uh, you know, who's, uh, what's that? Dosa Keys, the most interesting man in the world. Everybody's trying to be interesting. But I want to let you in on a little secret. If instead of trying to be interesting, if you'll be interested interested in the lives of others, you'll make some lifelong friendships. Just when you're talking to people, do you only talk about you or how it applies to you? Next time you're in a conversation, try this. Make it all about the other person. What's going on in their life? What are they into? Hey, what are you excited about? What's, you'll be surprised if you'll be interested in others, how many uh, relationships and friendships you can develop. Those are two, that wasn't even part of my message. I took up some of my time. I'm sorry. But I'm just telling you, all the time, people are like, oh, no one spoke to me. They're not friendly. Hey, are you friendly? Are you speaking to people? And when you speak to people, if you're only talking about yourself, nobody cares. Make it about the other person. And you know what? You'll have more friends than you know what to do with. So here's Paul, and he's, he's saying, hey, let me tell you how to have joy in your community, Philippians. And he says this, he says, don't do anything out of uh, selfishness or conceit. That word conceit is actually in the Greek. It's the word kendoxia, which dox in Greek is the word glory. When he says don't do anything out of vain conceit, it's sometimes translated uh, vanity, but the King James probably gets it most accurate. It says empty glory, without glory. Do nothing out of empty glory glory. And Paul's going to compare empty glory here in just a second to the glory of Jesus Christ. Now, Romans 3.23, we all know this, right? It says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Glory means weight or significance. And because of our own sin, we have fallen short of the significance. We've fallen short of the weightiness. Now remember that, glory. Paul said, don't do anything for empty or vain glory. He also says, we've all fallen short of glory. This, these scriptures has led uh, Pastor John Tyson. He likes to talk about this a lot. He says, because of sin, we, have, we all have a glory deficit in our lives. Now we might not ever verbalize it, and many people never stop to think about it because most people are on autopilot. But deep beneath the surface, there is an engine that's driving them. And you know what? The truth is we're far more broken than we would ever like to admit. And sin has caused a glory deficit in us. And people try to fill the glory deficit in their heart from things 
without. The glory deficit, you know what it really does? It makes us terrified of one thing. It makes us terrified of not mattering, being a nobody, not being weighty, not being significant. The glory deficit causes a deep existential dread on the inside of us. And the thought is this, that we don't matter and that we're insignificant. And honestly, one of the ways this plays out most commonly in our current situation, in our current culture, really is social media. People don't even mean to. They're not even, they don't even know why they're doing it. But go look at people's social media. Hey, there's good things about it. But social media is a place where starving people come for affirmation and attention and significance. Why are they doing that? Because of sin. There's a glory deficit. They need glory. They need to feel significant. So they're looking. They're looking for things. They're, 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 they're literally trying to suck the life out of other people so they can feel significant. And you know what? We all have this deficit within us. And how are we going to feel? How are we going to fill it? And the way people feel it in our culture, in the American culture, is they think, if I can make my way to the top, if I can claw, grasp, stretch, step on whoever I have to step on, if I can eke my way to the top, I'll grasp and I'll grind at every opportunity to make my way to the top. And so in our culture, it looks like this, okay? There's a song that said, we started from the bottom and now we're here, right? So in our culture, all right, here we are. This is where we're at. We're at we start at the bottom, and we think if I, can just, if I can just be here at the bottom, you know what I need to do? I need to sacrifice for a little bit. If I'll sacrifice, if I'll grind, uh, if I'll, I'll, I'll start working my way to the top. Now, what's at the top? At the top is glory. This is what we're trying to get to is glory, significance, weightiness. So if I start here, you know what? I might have to serve other people for a little while. I might have to sacrifice for a little while, but I'm serving and I'm sacrificing because that serving and that sacrificing is going to help me make my way to the top. And when I get there, you know what's there? Significance, glory. People are going to know my name. They're going to see how hard I work. They're going to see everything I gave up. And, and now I'm at the top and people know who I am. And we try to make our way to the top. Okay, this is culture's way. But the problem with making our way to the top a lot of times in culture's way is this. is that to get here, you had to step on a lot of people. To get here, you had a lot of selfish ambition. To get here, you had to ignore some things. And so often people, when they finally make it to the top, when they finally make it to, to glory, you know what? They've left a, a, a trail of dead bodies behind them. So many people they've injured. And a lot of times when we make it to the top, we can't sustain life at the top and we end up having a big fall. You know, pride comes before the fall and, and we end up coming all the way back down. At the bottom is being a nobody. Nobody wants to be a nobody. We want to get our way to the top. That is culture's way. But Paul is fixing to show us another way. Paul is fixing to show us the Jesus way. Okay, here's the truth about Christianity. Here's the truth about what it means to follow Christ. Christianity is not a race to the top. Actually, Christianity is actually a race to the back of the line. Paul says we're not looking for our own interests. We're not looking for our own stuff, but we're actually looking for a way to lay our lives down for one another. We want other people to gain 
We want to sacrifice for others, not for ourselves. And so let's. Paul is fixing to show us how Jesus operated his life. Think about it. Jesus starts in glory. Jesus starts at the top. But we're fixing to see that Jesus decides that he's not going to stay at the top. Philippians 2, 5 through 11, which we're fixing to read, it's going to tell us that Jesus, he goes down. That he leaves glory behind. And that he becomes a servant. He, put, he takes on the likeness of our image and he becomes a servant. And, he, and he, he humbles himself, the Bible says, to obedience. He obeys. He was at the top, man. He had it all. He had glory. But he gives up the glory. He empties himself of it. And he makes his way down. And he doesn't just go down. He keeps going down. He goes all the way to the bottom. The Bible says that he dies the death of a criminal. He dies a criminal's cross. You know who dies criminal's crosses in Rome? The, you know, Roman citizens couldn't be hung on a cross. Only outsiders were hung on a cross. The people who were the worst of the worst, the lowest of the lowest people are those who die on a cross. Jesus leaves glory and he descends down here and becomes a nobody. But then here's what happens. Philippians tells us that then God, because he was willing to do that, because he humbles himself, then Jesus is then highly exalted above all other names and all people are going to bow and worship at his name. And this is what you see. Listen, the kingdom of God turns culture's triangle upside down. It lays its life down for other people and it gives up everything it has for the sake of others. And then you see, you can't outgive God. You can't outdo God. And then when you humble yourself, boom, God will exalt you. And that's what we see. Jesus is the model of what it looks like to have joy in community. And I want to walk through what Jesus modeled just for a few minutes. We're actually going to kind of walk through verse by verse of uh, 2, 5 through 11. And this is some of the highest, what, they, what scholars call Christology in all of the Bible. Is this? It's actually an ancient poem. It's one of the first hymns probably written about Christ. It's called the Christ Hymn. And man, it's just so amazing what Jesus did, the total opposite of what we would do. So 2, 5, let's start there. Paul says, have this mind amongst yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And so Paul, remember, he tells them, hey, I want you to have one mind, and now I'm going to show you how to have one mind. I'm going to show you how to have unity, and that is by having the mind that Jesus had. Jesus is the clear model. Jesus is the clear way. And here's what Jesus did. Verse 6, it says, Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So Paul here begins this description of Christ in his pre-incarnate state. Before he became one of us, he existed in a state of glory. He existed with all the pomp and circumstance of being God. When you're, hey, he's got it all, okay? He is God. He's at the top of the pyramid. But what does he do? It says he does not, he does not count that as something uh, to, to, to be grasped to or hang on to. And it says that he, um, he, he doesn't cling to his rights. 
man, in America, we got rights, don't we? We all think about, well, that's my right. I have that right. I'm an American. God had all, Jesus had all the rights in the world as God. But it says he does not cling to those rights, but rather he's going to what verse 7 now says. It says, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And so having all the glory, what does he do with it? He empties himself of it. Now, does that mean when he came to the cross, came to the earth, when he became the incarnate Christ, you know, when we celebrate in Christmas, Jesus coming to earth, does that mean he quit being God? No, that doesn't mean that. It means he gave up the privileges of God. He, he, he gave up the rights he had and he lays them down and he comes and he takes on the likeness of us. Do you realize how frail we are? How weak we are? How fleshly we are? Oh man, if I could peel back the curtain right now and we could see in the spiritual realm, we would see both angels and both demons. And let me tell you, angels and demons are powerful beings, way more powerful than you and I. Actually, the scriptures talk about this. They say, who is man that you're mindful of him? Who is, who, why do you think so much of these frail, weak creatures? And he says, you crown them with dignity and honor. The Bible says that angels Look in on us and they're amazed because we're so weak and we're so frail. Yet God gives us, uh, he gives us so much honor and dignity and he loves us. And Jesus gives up. Do you realize that Jesus existed in a, he, he didn't always have a fleshly body. But when he was, he actually steps into time at a point in time. He steps out of eternity and forever has a body like ours. He takes on our weakness. He takes on our flesh so that he can be the great high priest for us. And then verse 8 says, In being found in human form, he humbles himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Paul is bringing out the bleak truth of what it means to humble. This is called the humiliation of Christ. Okay, if you look at it, he just keeps going further and further and further. Starts out as God. Gives up his glory, becomes here in our image like us. Humbles himself even further, becomes obedient, uh, even to the point of death. And not just any death, but he comes obedient to the point of death on a cross. The most disregarding, shameful death one could have during Roman times. Jesus humbles himself to that point. Amazing. He gives himself up for our sake. And then what it says in verses 9 through 11, therefore, here comes that other side of the pyramid. God's going to exalt him. It says, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name so that at that name of Jesus, every knee is going to bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You see, Jesus is Lord of all. And one day people are going to recognize all that he did, the sacrifice he made, the, the, the focus he had, the sincerity he had. And so Paul is telling the Philippians, Jesus is the model for how you should interact with each other. Have this mind of Christ towards each other. And so now I want to show you three people in the same text who modeled what Jesus did. First, I want to talk about Paul. Skip down with me to verse 16. Paul today represents sacrifice. Sacrifice for one another in the community. 2.16 says, 
Hold fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. If we're going to have joy in community, the life and community of faith is one where people sacrifice for one another. This is not a place where we step on each other to get what we want, but it's a place where we lay down our lives for each other. Paul, he talks about running. He talks about working. He talks about pouring himself out. It leads uh, G. Walter Hansen to say this, the previous pictures display the suffering of extreme exertion. The runner expends every ounce of energy to reach the finish line. The worker toils and struggles to complete the work. He says, now this picture goes even further to display the suffering of the ultimate sacrifice. The apostle pours out his life in his ministry. Paul says he's running. You know, my, my daughter, Scylla, she's nine. We have all our life, we've known, all her life, we've known she's a runner. I mean, just out in the yard, she could outrun. I'd put her up against any boy her age. I'm serious. You want to race my daughter? I think she will smoke you. I'm just saying it, okay? She's a champion. That's her favorite song right now by Carrie Underwood. I am the champion. We got home from a track meet the other day. We turned that thing all the way up to 11 in my truck, and we were jamming out in the back. But listen, she's fast. By the way, she didn't get that from me. I'm slow-footed. That was, that's why I never really excelled in sports. But uh, it's been awesome to watch her as she's learning to, be, to run. Uh, the look of determination on her face when she rounds a corner and she's headed for the finish line. It is fierce. She just has this natural stride. I think running might be her thing. But, so she's been running. The hardest race that they run is the 600. And the coach asked her to run the 600 for her age. So that's three laps around the track. And, you know, she's learning to get a good pace. You run at a good pace, but then at the end, oh boy, that's when you turn the jets on. You stay with the pack, but then at the end, you turn the jets on. And it's just been, when she crosses the finish line, it's been awesome to see when she crosses, she's hurting. But I'm glad she's hurting because you know what that tells me? She's leaving it all on the track. That she didn't have nothing left inside of her. When she crossed that finish line, she might feel like she's getting ready to lose her lunch. <laughs> but the reason she feels that way is because every ounce that was in her, she expended it to get across the finish line. Paul knows he's in prison, which means this could be the end for him. This could be it. And I would venture to say that when you get to the end of your life, Paul's at the end of his life here, probably. When you get to the end of your life, you know what? The biggest regrets are not the mistakes you made. They're not the things you did wrong. When we get to the end of our life, the biggest regrets we will have is what we've left undone. The things we didn't do. The things that we should have done or could have done. But for whatever reason, we left them undone. And Paul, he's at the end of his life. And he's saying, I've expended everything. I've poured it all out for the gospel and for you, Philippians. Do you think Paul regretted the sacrifice you think Paul regretted all he gave at the end of his life? No, not for one second. In fact, he finds great joy in what he's given out. Has it been painful? Yeah. 
Has it hurt? Yeah. But listen, he says, rejoice with me. Rejoice in this. I have poured my life out like an offering unto God. That's sacrificial language. In the Old Testament, drink offerings would be poured out before the Lord on the altar. Paul's life, he said, is one that was poured out, laid out on the altar. When he died, he had nothing left in his cup. He had expended it all. So the question is, are you going to die empty? Are you going to die with nothing left? Are you going to expend it all? Because leaving it all out on the track field, leaving it all out on the altar, that's where joy comes from. Why did it bring him great joy? It brought him great joy because that's what Jesus did. Remember, it says Jesus emptied himself. He poured it all out for our sake. And now Paul's saying, I get to do the same thing. I get to pour my life out for the one who poured his life out for me and for others. Now listen, I'm not talking about being reckless. I'm not talking about, uh, you know, uh, like you're doing this by your own power. You're doing it by your own will. No, I'm actually talking about if your life's on the altar, then the Holy Spirit is going to do something on the inside of you. And when the Holy Spirit does something on the inside of you through the word of God, through prayer, through community, through the people of God, the Holy Spirit's working in you, right? We already know the Spirit of God's working in the Philippians, right? Last week, hey, the one who began a good work on you will see it to completion. God is working in this community. And what God is working in them, then they are to work out. Listen, listen to what Paul says to in uh Verse 12, go up a little bit. It says, therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation. Work out, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You see, a life poured out, because I want to make sure I'm not talking about, you know, uh, I'm not talking about the country song, Live Like You Were Dying, right? We went skydiving, we went Rocky Mountain climbing. That's what I'm, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about your life is laid down on the altar. And because you're surrendered to God, the Holy Spirit is working in you, man. He's doing things in you. And what he's doing in you, then it's your job to work it out. Okay, listen, you can only work out what the Holy Spirit has first worked in. Paul said, it is the power at work within you, giving you both the desire and the ability to accomplish it. That's so amazing. Everything we do for God, everything we accomplish for the kingdom, the only reason we're going to accomplish it is number one, the Holy Spirit has put a desire inside of me. Do you think Paul was like, oh, I can't stand the Philippians. They get on my nerves. They're annoying. I hate them. I can't stand it, but I guess I'm going to go pour my life out for them. No, that wasn't, Paul had such a strong desire inside of him to love these people and to pour himself out for them. You know, when I was a kid, I used to be so afraid that, you know, I don't want to serve Jesus because what if he makes me, you know, move to some distant, remote part of the earth, somewhere I don't want to be. And then, you know, and, and we were, I was so afraid of that. But the truth is, if you have surrendered your life to the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit's going to put desires in you. Man, if he puts a desire in you to go live at the ends of the earth and tell those people, that's from the Holy Spirit. Go do it. 
But if his desire that he's worked inside of you is to stay at home and to raise your kids, work it out with all the power and the ability that the Spirit gives you. Wherever he has put you, sacrifice for that that's in front of you for the kingdom of God. What he's working in by his power, we must work it out. Sacrifice. Sacrifice marks the community. Here's the second thing. Timothy. Timothy represents sincerity. A genuineness. Look what it says in 2.19. It says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, Philippians, so that I too may be cheered by the news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Did you see that? Genuineness. A genuine concern for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son... With the Father, he has served me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. Timothy represents sincerity in the community. Paul's in prison. He's in Rome. Paul knows a lot of people in Rome. He names over 30 people at the end of his book in Rome. He knows a lot of people. But listen, do you see what he says? I've only got one that I can really trust. I've only got one. Out of all those people I mentioned, there's one who has genuine concern for you. Why could Paul trust Timothy? Why was, why was Timothy proven in Paul's sight? It was because of his genuineness. Timothy was sincere. He was sincere in his faith. In fact, if you go back and you read uh, in the book of Timothy, uh, he will talk about, he, he will say, Timothy, I remember the sincere faith you had and you got it from your grandmother, Lois, and your mother. Like, like Timothy had been a part of a legacy, a family, and, and Paul specifically says you have a sincere, a genuineness about you. If we're going to have joy in community, there's going to have to be a sincerity in our community. Okay, the Latin word sincere means without wax, without wax. In ancient days, pottery merchants sold pots. And with that, they had markings on them to differentiate the cheaper pots that had been cracked and repaired with wax and paint. And, uh, and the, ones that were, uh, the ones that had not been broken. Okay, so if a pot broke, you could put it back together and they would fix the crack with wax and then they would paint over the wax, so it looks like you know it's brand new, and that. But you, anything that was cracked and the pottery that was cracked, it would have wax. So, if a pottery was whole without cracks and without wax, that's what they would put on the pot. Sincere without wax. So this word sincere came to imply that something was real, it was transparent, it was genuine, and so uh, Timothy had a genuine faith. And if you see why Timothy had a genuine faith, one of the reasons, Paul traces it back, right? The spiritual climate of his home. Spirit, uh, he had a genuine faith because his mother and grandma had a genuine faith. A sincere faith without hypocrisy, okay? The word hypocrite is thrown a lot around, okay? We say that all the time, oh, they're hypocrites. But what is a hypocrite? You know, in the original context, that word comes from the world of theater. Hypocrites were actors, they're just playing a part on a stage for an audience in order that they will receive applause and adoration when the play is over. 
But when the play is over, they're not going to keep acting. Why? Because it's over. They were only pretending to be something. The show is over. They go back to their way of life. Listen, if a community is going to have joy, it needs to have, it needs to be a place where people are sincere in their faith. What does it mean to have sincere faith? It means we're not just playing a part when others are watching. It means we embody the words of the scriptures. It means we've been transformed into the image of Christ. Jesus doesn't want us to just play a part in front of people when we come to church. He wants, he wants those from, uh, to be able to see in us that we've been transformed from the inside out. Okay, and I think it's so interesting that the reason Timothy has a sincere faith is because he was shown a sincere faith in his home. Let me just take a moment to address moms and dads, grandmas, grandpas, and then those within the community of faith. I want to say about the Crossing Church, you want to know one, one of the reasons I'm here today, and I love this church, and I, you know, a lot of people have church hurt. They don't want nothing to do with church because they've seen, they've seen so many bad things in church. But I can say that's not my story. I don't hate, I love the church. You want to know why? Because the Crossing Church is a place where I have seen people with sincere faith. Now, have they done bad things or broken things? Absolutely. I've, I've seen people do not great things. But you know what? I've seen people that didn't do great things. You know what they did? They confessed their sin. They repented. They changed. They were transformed by the power of God. Our church has been a sincere church from the beginning. And because of that, I can tell you, I've been a recipient of that blessing. It's brought joy in my life. Parents, if you want your kids to follow Jesus, if you want them to be a disciple of Christ, the best way for that to happen isn't just putting them in a Christian school, isn't just protecting them from the big bad world. The best way you can do it is you yourself model it in front of them. Show them what a sincere faith looks like. Show them that you don't just lift your hands on Sunday morning, but they see you riding down the road and lifting your hands and praising Jesus. When they, when they, when they come in, they, uh, they see you praying or they see you reading your Bible. They see something sincere in you. And that sincerity, I promise you, will replicate in their lives over time. They will appreciate it. We need sincerity in the church. All right, here's the last one. Simplicity. And this is from this, this guy, Epaphroditus. All right, simplicity. Philippians 2.25 says, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all, and he's been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and near death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me also lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. But I am more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, that, he, that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor for such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. I love this. He almost died risking his life to complete Epaphroditus had a focus about him to complete the task. He represents to us simplicity. So we have sacrifice, sincerity, and now we have simplicity. Paul has great affection in his heart for this man, Epaphroditus. Why? He calls him a brother. He's close. He calls him a soldier. He's fighting till the end. He calls him a messenger. He calls him a minister. You see, when Paul was in prison in the Philippian church, or I'm sorry, in Rome, 
the Philippian church took up an offering for him. And it was hand-delivered to him to care for his needs while he was in prison. Well, if you look it up, Rome is about 800 miles from Philippi. Okay, 800 miles. Okay, from Chattanooga right now to New York City, that's 750 miles. I have driven that three or four times in my life. That is a long, long drive. It's a long drive. Okay, imagine traveling 800 miles without cars, without airplanes, and Epaphroditus does this. It's estimated that it probably took him about two months to get there. So this is a four-month trip there and back, and it's a treacherous journey, and it almost cost him his life. But you know what? Epaphroditus had a mission. He had a vision. He was focused on the task at hand. Epaphroditus had narrowed his focus to one thing. Remember when we started today what Paul asked the Philippians to do? He said, please be of one mind. Be single-minded. Have a singular focus. The com- that's, that's simplicity. If the community of God is going to have joy, it's going to have to have a singular focus. Okay, now I'm not, I'm about to read something to you because I I don't know anything about the law of thermodynamics, okay, but I've heard about it and I'm not smart. I'm not a scientist, but have you ever heard of thermodynamics? Okay, thermodynamics is the study of energy in its different forms, okay? The first and second laws of thermodynamics describe the way the process of energy works. All right, the first law states that energy is conserved, In other words, energy can't be created or destroyed. It can only be exchanged from one kind of energy to another. So, for example, if you push a rock off of a cliff, you've converted gravitational energy into kinetic energy. That's the first law. The second law is called uh, the, uh, the law of entropy, okay? It's why ice cream melts on a summer day. It's why your coffee cools down. It's why uh, it's the law of thermodynamics, the second one, introduces entropy into the equation. It basically states that if left to its own devices, everything moves from uh, order to disorder. Everything is moving towards disorder, okay? Your car's going to rust. The toy's going to break. Your food is going to rot. If you're a parent, the kid's room that's clean now, by the time they get home from school, guess what? The room will be not clean anymore. It basically says everything is moving towards complexity. But you know what a genius is? A genius is someone who can take complexity and move it towards simplicity or order. It's when you take something complex and you make it simple. This is what God does. Think about creation. God takes complexity. Complexity. There's disorder. It's darkness at the beginning of the, the world. And then God says, let there be light. And pew, he starts putting everything in to order. So we have to take complexity and bring it back into simplicity. And this takes work. It's natural for us, if left to our own devices, if left to just us and how we think about things, you know what we're going to do? We're going to run after all these different things in life. That's why Matthew 6.31, Jesus says, hey, don't worry about what you're going to eat or what you're going to drink or what you're going to wear. He said, this is what the Gentiles run after. They're running after all these things. They're going all over the place. Their life is very complex. But Jesus says, look, you just need to have one focus. He says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Then all these other things 
will be added to you what you're going to eat, what you're going to wear, how you're going to live. Jesus tells us if left to our own devices, we get complex. But if we'll put singular focus, if we'll get so narrowed and focused on one thing, then that one thing will bring us together and it won't be so complex. And you know what? Church, community and church can get really complex and it can get really complicated really fast. Why? Because we think in our mind, the busier a church is, right? The more programs it can offer, the more ministries it can have, then that's really what a real church, a big church should do. And so a lot of times church have so many plates spinning at one time. And you know what happens? It gets so complex and then people get worn down and then they quit. And Paul is telling the church, look at Epaphroditus. He had one mission. He had one goal. Paul is telling the church at Philippians, hey, 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 you want to know how you're going to be unified? It's when you have one purpose and Paul gives the church something they can unify around. And it's really simple. It's Jesus. I want to point back to the whiteboard here for a second. Now, imagine if all these little dots on this board, that this is us. This is you and this is me. Okay, and we're all, the dots are all over the place. And Jesus says, don't think about yourself, think about other people. And so I'm like, okay, well, here I am up here. I'm going to think about this guy down here and see what he's up to. And then maybe this dot right here can come together. And then, hey, we'll get this guy together. Uh, but, but the thing is, look, the closer we come together over here, look, the further away we're moving from this person. And now this person over here feels left out. And I think, well, why is everybody over here at their small group? And they should be at my small group. Hey, everybody went to the quilting group, and now the prayer group is left out over here. And we have all, and it's just like we all get spread out, and it gets complex, and we're all doing our thing. Or maybe you feel bad about this person over here, so you're going to leave this group, and now I'm going to go over here to this group. And we're just all spread out everywhere. And see, if we're all just kind of running around, doing, going about everyone else's business, it's not unifying. When Paul says, have one mind, what he's saying is, look at Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Look at Jesus. Look at the model. Jesus is the answer. Seek first Jesus and his kingdom. And instead of trying to run over here to this thing, if we're all spread out, but if we all have one goal, if we all have one vision, look, this one, oh yeah, I'm going to focus on Jesus. I'm going to focus my life on Christ. I'm going to live my life for the glory of God. I'm going to quit running around like a chicken with my head cut off from one thing to the next with my life. And we all just start going towards the same goal. We all start moving towards Christ. And the closer we get to Christ, actually what happens is the closer we get together. And our lives are centered around one thing. The goal is Christ. And if we'll all have singular focus... If we'll all sacrifice like he sacrificed and pour ourselves out like he poured himself out. If we'll all be sincere and love one another without hypocrisy, then we are going to form a community like the world has never seen. The world doesn't operate on these principles. And it makes the church an alternative community, a beautiful thing. And when we do what Jesus did, then we will have joy. And that is Philippians chapter 2 today. Father, I pray for your church. Jesus, we just thank you because you were the model. You showed us the way. You gave it up. Everything. You gave up heaven to be like us. 
so that we could be like you. We give you praise for that. Lord, help us to be like Paul and to sacrifice. Help us to be like Timothy and to be sincere. Help us to be like Epaphroditus and have a singular focus, a singular vision. We ask this in Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Hey, church, thank you for being here today. That was Philippians 2. Next week, Philippians chapter 3. We will see you. Hey, don't forget, tonight, 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 we have uh, a spirit night. And that is not on camera. That's only in the room. You need to be in the room. Let the Holy, Holy Spirit come and feel you. Come expecting. We'll see you soon.